the year of the monkeys. The monkeys are coming to your town, your Blu-ray player, your CD player, and your computer. And you need to be prepared. What number is this, Jim? Episode 52. Good times and more monkey news. And Jay McDowell from the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. And from the group BR549. Hey, Holina. Hey, Holina. Hey, Holina. <laughs> okay, not me. Like, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I'm so- You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. And with that familiar music, you are listening to Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. I am Ken Mills, one of your hosts here, and today I'm joined by Sarah Clark. Hello, everybody. Now, Sarah, you've had a bit of a pay upgrade, at least uh, in your uh, fighting class. Uh, You're now an official doctor. Yes, but I don't play one on TV. Yes, uh, earlier this week I defended my dissertation in higher ed leadership at OSU. Um, When I mentioned it on my personal uh, Facebook page, a lot of listeners said congratulations and, um, you know, wished me well. And thank you all very much. It's very cool. And uh, hopefully you can get me some prescriptions for this cough. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that kind of doctor. We'll talk. Anyway. (laughs) Well, Sarah, it wouldn't be a zilch episode without some cool monkey news, so let's check out Monkey News. Andrew Sandoval tweeted a very cool picture of Bobby Hart back on March 25th, and it had him playing some keyboards. He said, everything I've learned about production has been leading up to today, producing a session for a monkey song with Bobby Hart playing a Vox organ. And (laughs) that's pretty cool. And he said, it is a new song written by Andrew Partridge, Loves What I Want. That might be an exclusive track on an edition of Good Times, fingers crossed, he wrote. And as I wrote in a comment, I am glad that I've been paying down my credit card. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, good times are indeed coming. And we also got photos of Coco Dolan's in the studio. And she was laying down background vocals for Loves What I Want and a track called Better World. Mm. So it's so cool that Andrew Sandoval and John Hughes and everybody over at Rhino are keeping us all updated as Monkeys fan. We we appreciate it. And it's just fantastic. And on the other side of the Atlantic, our good friend, friend to the show, friend to monkey fans everywhere, Ian Lee. Woohoo! Uh, podcaster, disc jockey, father, and one of the owners of 7A Records. Man about town as well. We could put that in there. He recently spoke to Andrew Partridge from XTC. And this is just a bit 
of what you should be listening to on his show. Yes, everybody here needs to be listening to Ian Lee's new show on talk radio. Go to talkradio.co.uk if you are not in the UK. If you are in the UK, you can get yourself what I guess is called a DAB radio. They will, and you'll be able to listen to Ian on that. He's on every night. His show actually comes on kind of during drive time in the US. It's yep. So here is this exclusive from Late Nights with Ian Lee. Late night, Ian Lee on Talk Radio. We have ways of making you talk. Andy Partridge is here. Well, uh, evening, Andy. You have been asked to write um, a song or songs for the uh, the new Monkeys album. Not the new Monkeys, the Monkeys' new album. It's the Monkeys' 50th anniversary this year. As you know, and most of the listeners know, I am obsessed with the Monkeys. My favourite group. Monkey-tastic, aren't you? Monkey. T- my favourite group having a song written by one of my favourite songwriters. How did that come about? And tell us about the song. Have they rec- you've written a couple of songs for the Monkeys. Do you, how many have they done? A fellow called Andrew Sandoval. Yep. Uh, he's like a, a sort of monkey archivist, uh, but he also manages the band. And um, he got hold of me on Twitter and said, um, you know, can I have a chat with you? Uh, and he emailed me and said, um, the Monkeys are going to make one last great sounding album where we're going to ask a lot of really good writers to, to contribute songs. Because they used to get America's Best Writers. Yeah. You know, they got the Carol Kings and the Neil Diamonds and the, the Poison Hearts and you know, all these people to write a material. And so they thought they'd uh, they'd go out with a bang and, and get the best writers they could to, to do this this one last one last kaboom album. You I know. spoke to you and you were genuinely thrilled. I was talking to fifteen year old Andy Partridge. You were genuinely thrilled, weren't you? I was I was totally gone on it. Um, and because I was a I was a huge Monkeys fan. And they've they've done it. They've recorded it. That, that you, Mickey Dolan sent you a video of him singing it or something, didn't oh, he? Oh man, Mickey Dolan sent me a um, a little thing of him in the studio saying, you know, hi Andy, this is Mickey here. We're wow. just the vocals uh, to your song. They're putting it out as the first single. <laughs> uh, it's called "You Bring the Summer." It's coming out in May. And I got an email two nights ago asking me for the chord charts for another of the songs. Oh. Hello, ladies so, and gentlemen. This is an exclusive. exclusive. So, what, do, are we allowed, are you allowed to tell us anything about the second song? They are recording a song called "Loves What I Want for Us All." Oh man! Late night, Ian Lee on Talk Radio. You can check out Ian Lee and all of his other cool interviews and his very cool show over at TalkRadio.co.uk, and you can also check him out on iTunes, where they do a would you say truncated version of his? Yeah, it's it's kind of the greatest hits of the uh, of uh, the, the that before. evening's podcast. Yes, it's they seem to be running about a half hour long, but uh, they're a lot of fun. And he's been interviewing a lot of really cool classic rock folks, also just some other really interesting guests. And if you have never checked out one of his radio shows, this is a really good opportunity to get on board. And you know, you can tell all your friends you're cooler than them because you listen to this nifty British DJ, and so you can be all hipster. And he is a bona fide, verified, true blue Monkees fan. Don't get any truer or bluer than him. True. Recently, I purchased the 7A Records release of An Evening with Peter Noon and Mickey Dolenz. And it is a hoot and a half, and we encourage everybody to check it out. And we will be doing a segment on 7A's release, An Evening with Peter Noon and Mickey Dolenz, soon. 
but you can find it on Amazon.com and other places where fine music is sold. Mm-hmm. So are you ready for the Blu-ray release, which is coming out this month? I am ready. I have actually got a new little Blu-ray player that is hooked up to my computer so that, you know, when we start doing commentaries based on that, if I have to pinch hit on any of those, I'm ready to rock. And I'm really excited because it's going to be, that's going to be a fun set. Everything we've heard about it is just going to be, makes it sound like it's just going to be incredible. Absolutely. And if you have not already ordered your Blu-ray box set of The Monkees, here's how you can do it. Here it comes. The Monkees, the complete series, is coming to Blu-ray. All 58 episodes, carefully remastered from the original 35mm prints in high definition for the very first time. Ten jam-packed discs that also include the movie Head, the 1969 TV special, 33 and a third revolutions per monkey, plus an exclusive bonus disc full of surprises. Pre-order now at monkeys.com. This set is not available anywhere else and is strictly limited to 10,000 individually numbered copies. The Monkeys, the complete series, on Blu-ray, only at monkeys.com. Zilch fans, this is Melanie Mitchell. Be sure to check out my book, Monkey Magic, a book about a TV show about a band. It's a lighthearted review and companion for the TV show that made the 60s fun. The paperback is available online from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and the ebook can be bought anywhere that fine ebooks are sold. Check out the Monkey Magic Facebook page, follow me on Tumblr at bluemoonalto.tumblr.com, and listen for my contributions here on Zilch, a monkey's podcast. So as we look forward to that Blu-ray, we also want to encourage you to pick up Melanie Mitchell's book. So uh, it's a nice companion to the Blu-ray set. It is a absolutely perfect companion piece to the Monkees TV show. I have enjoyed watching the show while reading the early drafts of her book, and I know a lot of listeners have, so it seems like a perfect thing to buy right alongside your Blu-ray. Absolutely. Sarah, I think it's time for us to dive into the Monkees mailbag. You ready? I got my flip-flops on. <laughs> your good flip-flops, I hope. Mm-hmm. Here we go. All right, and here we are. Sarah, would you please read this wonderful response from someone on iTunes? This comes from Sith Rich. It is a five-star iTunes rating. Thank you, as always. Sith Rich says, As the producer slash co-host of four podcasts myself, I know how much work goes into putting together a professional-sounding podcast. I will delete any show from my playlist if it is clear the hosts and producers don't show respect to the subject matter or their listeners. Zilch will never be deleted. This is a very professional show, and the production quality is way above 99.999999 yeah, that's all of them, percent of what is out there. Even if you are not a Monkees fan, is that even possible? Listen to this show to hear what a great podcast should sound like. I can't say enough about Zilch. This is the Monkees podcast you're looking for. Wow. (laughs) 
we thank you for your iTunes reviews and if you want to leave us a review on iTunes please feel free to do so and we thank you for those five star reviews especially it just makes us feel all warm and fuzzy and it's great and it also helps your fellow monkeys fans find zilch because the Absolutely. more reviews and ratings we get the more visible we become in iTunes mm -hmm. very true mm-hmm and speaking of monkeys fans as Sarah and I are recording this monkey fans in the Chicago area are gathering for a gathering of the zilch nation that's right Pete Blatchford has started a nice little thing where uh, people in the Chicago area are going to get together talk about monkeys and their love of zilch so hello yep. to everybody out there sorry Sarah and I could not be there but Melanie is on her way as we speak so yes we as, hope to... as uh, Peter that great philosopher Peter Tork once said I myself am deeply jealous yes and we encourage gatherings and get-togethers as a matter of fact it's really cool on the Facebook page a lot of people are posting where they can meet before the upcoming concerts so that's really cool and uh, mm -hmm. we really we really appreciate that and we support it 100% that's one of the cool things for so for so many people for so long it seemed like they they maybe didn't have a monkey friend I and didn't have a monkey friend until uh, until the 90s when the fandom sort of came up on the internet and it's a wonderful thing to be part of this community now speaking of the meetups and get-togethers I actually will be coordinating a meetup before the Tulsa concert on June 20th I believe it is uh, I actually live pretty close to the venue where it'll be taking place and if there is interest from other Okie Monkeys fans uh, I will be putting together some sort of get-together even either before or after the show where we can hang out and you know be monkeys nerds together monkey around is the phrase. monkey around yes that is the technical term yes yes absolutely well on today's show we have a very cool interview that Sarah did Sarah would you like to tell us about this interview oh I was so thrilled to ha do this interview Jay McDowell is a curator at the Musicians Hall of Fame in Nashville Tennessee he is a real archivist and historian of the role of session musicians and uh, side men and side women that uh, basically play all the you know the background parts on all the music that we know and love, not just the monkeys. But we did focus specifically on a lot of the better known and even less better known session musicians who played important parts in the monkey's legacy. Uh, we also talked about famous recording sessions like uh, for uh, Nez's solo album, or I don't know if it's, Wichita Train Whistle Sings, however we're defining that particular Nez album, and um, the role of session musicians in that. We talk about the famous uh, intro guitar lick on Valerie. You may learn that what you thought was true about that is not true. And uh, we picked up a lot of really other interesting stories that are not just about the history of session musicians in the monkeys, but also session musicians in the 60s and beyond. And it was just such a fascinating conversation. Well, let's check out this very cool interview with Jay McDowell. <laughs> Hey, it's Jay McDowell from the Musicians Hall of Fame, and you're listening to Zilch, the only show that matters. Oh, I love that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that works for me. Oh, well, a chip would keep you cheap as he did. 
Hotline, we're talking to Jay McDowell from the Musicians Hall of Fame in Nashville, Tennessee. Some listeners may know Jay McDowell from his stint in the 1990s as a founding member of the country group BR549, a gig which led to a whirlwind tour of stardom that included CMA and CMT awards, as well as a memorable green room encounter with Davy Jones, which we'll get to a little bit later. In 2001, Jay traded in his upright bass for a family sedan and settled down in Nashville. After five years of editing country music videos, he became involved with the Musicians Hall of Fame, a then-new museum founded to honor the studio musicians and sidemen and women of all genres of music from all over America. Many of the musicians who made significant contributions to the Monkees' musical legacy are honored at the Hall of Fame, and we asked Jay to drop by today to tell us more about some of the lesser-known talents who created some of the most well-known music of the Monkees and many other 60s acts and besides. Welcome to Zilch, Jay. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Let's start with the basics. What is a session musician or a studio musician, and what uh, role did they play in the evolution of pop music? Right. The studio musician is a versatile player who typically is in the background. Typically, it's not anybody you've ever heard of, but they have to be able to kind of be a chameleon and slide into any situation uh, and be called upon to play different styles of music and sometimes different instruments, um, but they are typically the ones, and most most records you buy now credit the studio musicians and, and give credit to them. Back in the 50s and 60s, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. So, in the in the terms of the monkey situation, uh, you know, of course, they kind of famously took the fall for it. But uh, they they had these session musicians playing the the, the tracks, playing the the instruments. The monkeys would use their voices, of course. But what I tell people at the museum every day is that was a normal uh, situation. That that wasn't just the monkeys. That that was pretty pretty much standard. Whether it was the birds or the Beach Boys or the Mamas and the Papas, uh, they typically used studio musicians. And in different cities as well, Motown. When you heard a Temptations record, or you heard the Supremes, or you heard the Four Tops, it was the same group of guys backing them up. Uh, from record to record. I never thought about that as a kid. And in my mind, they were completely different animals, uh, different, different records, but uh, they did have a Motown sound. I'll mm-hmm. give them that. But, but yeah. uh, it, it just, it was a, a common practice. So yeah. I, I, I always, I always point that out to people. Right. What roles did session musicians play throughout the history of the monkeys? I imagine with their battle to gain control over their own musical destiny, it probably evolved somewhat as the band kind of grew throughout their career. So yeah, the monkeys are like a unique situation. They didn't have a formula where um, some of the other bands, once they had success, they would want the same guys playing on their records. Whereas the monkeys, the Boyce and Hart kind of were driving the bus at the beginning. So their band, the candy store profits were, were kind of backing them up and uh, Louis Shelton playing guitar and um, Billy Lewis playing drums and, those guys uh, doing Clarksville and Stepping Stone and and uh, those early those early cuts. Right. Um, so then, yeah, of course, the monkeys famously take over the reins and and in headquarters uh, for the most part playing. You know, they they really made a point of trying to play every instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to me, just 
knowing that, okay, after their second album, they're riding this wave of success and thinking about their time constraints. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing that they had any time to even cut vocals, let alone yeah. go in and lay down an entire album. So, you know, my hat's off to them. Mm-hmm. But again, I think from my perspective after headquarters, I'm thinking they must've looked at that. Like that was, they bit off more than they could chew because yeah. then, then they kind of evolved into different studio guys. And, um, a couple of those early guys popped their heads up again on those liner notes and in, in the studio sessions, uh, from those early sessions. But for the most part, it's a new batch of, of, uh, studio guys from, we're talking Pisces on, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that are are playing on those those records and yet and I always talk about how the monkeys have such a different genres within the same albums. Oh yeah, they're they're pushing they're pushing the boundaries. Yet it still comes off like a monkeys album, and there's mm-hmm. something it's there's something there that it it still sounds like the monkeys. But they really did have an interesting trip through their whole their whole recording career. Uh, the the way it kind of naturally evolved, and I think that also leads to why fans really like certain albums, and maybe are less fans of of other albums. Right, you know, right. you, you you know, you got some people that think the the early stuff, the bubblegum stuff, is where it's at, and then some people want the little bit more uh, psychedelic stuff. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it all, but I know everybody kind of has their different thing that they're favorites of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and you touched on this a little bit when you you started with your excellent defense of their use of set, uh, session musicians, but was the role of session musicians on Monkey's recordings really any different when you compare them with other bands of the day like uh, the Beach Boys or the Association or the Mamas and the Papas? I always say at the museum that the Monkey's seemed to be the bad guys in that. And it really was a common occurrence that, that, you know, the, so many of those LA bands were using the same guys on the records and the beach boys, uh, it's really been pretty documented now how, mm-hmm. how much the beach boys, uh, you know, Brian Wilson really was fascinated with what Phil Spector was doing in the studio. And he like, I want those guys on my records. Right. And, um, so the, the, the great drummer, Hal Blaine was talking about, uh, his experience on the Beach Boys records and and everything, and, and wondering if Dennis Wilson, the drummer, took it personally that he wasn't getting play on his records, and and Hal had a great bit about uh, he found out in the end in about 1970 when Dennis Wilson did a solo album, Dennis hired Hal to come in and play drums on a solo <laughs> album, so he. He felt like, well, hey, if he had an axe to grind, uh, he, he wouldn't have hired me for a solo record. So Probably true. Uh, he, he felt like that was some vindication. And these these guys that, that play on the Monkees records played on so many other things. And I, I think it was interesting that when the Monkees were taking all that heat, nobody stood up. They didn't want to kill a good thing. Nobody stood up and said, hey, you know, we all do it. And yeah. uh, I think it was, it, you know, they, they saw what was happening to the monkeys and, and they didn't want that backlash themselves. So, uh, and I don't hold it against anybody else. Uh-huh. I think, uh, you know, I think they knew they needed to keep their mouth shut, I guess, but uh, it is fascinating all these years later to, to find out how much it was going on and how the general public just had no idea and didn't even suspect that. 
We're rolling, please. This is one. Davey, just sing into his ear. Don't get out in the middle of the floor. One take, guys, and we're through. Here we go. different names of groups of session musicians i've heard of the wrecking crew you mentioned the candy store prophets earlier and i think there were some others who were the major groups of session musicians who worked with the monkeys during the 60s and were they really bands as we might think of the term today right they were not uh typically bands they're they're typically hired guns they're they're individuals that were called in and um most most of them were searching for something else, you know, for for fame on their own. But a lot of these guys just that was their eight to five job. They would they would go in and and it was a different session every day. And uh, now typically the monkey stuff was typically done in Los Angeles. So uh, you've got a lot of these guys that are doing the rock and roll gigs, but they're also doing the, the Hollywood, the, the, you know, the soundtrack, movie soundtrack work and, and jingles and, right. and commercial stuff too. So uh, there's a lot of bleed, bleed over there. Um, so the wrecking crew is a loose term for those LA guys. Um, now you can make the argument that the wrecking crew is 400 people. Uh, through through the years and, and on all these different sessions. You can also make the argument that it's like 10 guys. So uh, Hal Blaine, the, the, the drummer, was, was kind of a session leader for a lot of these sessions, and, and he kind of came up with the term wrecking crew. And uh, that kind of came from the older established jazz guys hmm. felt like these kids were coming along and playing the rock and roll, which was kind of beneath the jazz guys. So these <laughs> These guys like Glenn Campbell and Hal Blaine and Joe Osborne and uh, these younger guys are coming along and they're getting all these rock and roll gigs, doing all these sessions. And the older jazz guys were saying, these kids are going to wreck the business. <laughs> and so Hal kind of ran with that and just took on the, you know, took on the nickname, the wrecking crew and, and called them, referred to themselves as that. Now, there's a great documentary called The Wrecking Crew that uh, I highly recommend. Yes, it's excellent. Re really gives you an overview of, of what they're about and and like we touched on earlier about earlier about the uh, what's a session musician's role they they really kind of sum that up now the beautiful thing about where i work the museum is that we kind of show these parallel stories in all these other parts of the world so motown had the funk brothers they had this also kind of large uh group of 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 players that, that played on these, all these sessions, Muscle Shoals, Alabama had the Swampers. Mm -hmm. um, of course, Nashville had the A-Team. Memphis had their guys, uh, Booker T and the MGs and, uh, and, and those guys that would back up artists. Um, Philadelphia had like the Philly soul stuff. So wow. it's all these places. New Orleans had a really great studio scene. I imagine they would. Yeah. All these, all these places all around. Uh, and again, before the internet, they're, just hearing each other's records, that's the way they know what's going on. But uh -huh. uh, it's amazing how these parallel stories that were happening at the same time yeah. and uh, what a, an amazing time it was. So for the monkeys scene, we're, we're talking L.A., 
So a lot of these guys, uh, because of the just the pure number of sessions going on, these guys are busy and they're working and they're doing all these different different uh, artist stuff. Yeah. The monkey sessions, you start seeing that. Oh, it's not a formula. Uh, you know, some of the same musicians show up on a lot of the recordings, but mm-hmm. but there's a lot of turnover. There's a lot of different. You know, they might have uh, you know done three or four songs with this group of musicians, and then. Uh, you know, two weeks later, did three or four other songs, and not all those guys were available, so it's some other musicians, and so there's some definite turnover in there. But uh, the a lot of the Wrecking Crew guys are on those Monkey Records. Yeah, yeah, and one of those session mu- musicians you mentioned him uh, in passing, probably one of the ones who had had a one of the biggest careers after playing on Monkey's recordings is Glenn Campbell. Um, what recordings was he involved with? Right. So Glenn Campbell, before he was heard of, that's how he made his living was mm-hmm. playing on these records. So Glenn played mainly on the Monkey Sessions on the first couple albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the typically the ones that were Mike Nesmith. Uh, yeah, I can see driven. that. <laughs> so him and, uh, and another great guitar player named James Burton. Mm-hmm. We're on uh, a lot of those, like Papa Jean's Blues. Yeah. And uh, and then um, Mary Mary, I believe, was Glenn oh, yeah, Campbell yeah. as okay. well. We're rolling, man. This is take one. Uh, Mary Mary, where are you going to? Mary Mary, can I go to, please? One, two. Faster than that. was uh, again he was on beach boys sessions he played guitar on uh, right. on on a lot of a lot of different uh, hit stuff and and a lot of the the wrecking crew guys said that he would a lot of times do the demos of these songs so oh, he would okay. he would lay down a demo to kind of kind of uh, show the the session guys hey this is this is the feel that the producer is going for this is what they kind of want right and, uh, and so they could kind of familiarize themselves with the with the song so they they give him a lot of credit. Now at the time he was doing these monkey songs, he wasn't he was known to these musicians, but he wasn't a household name. That mm-hmm. you know, that came later. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I've heard kind of a a rumor, urban legend making the rounds that he played that that famous guitar lick in Valerie. Was was that him, or do we know that? Well, I always throw out the uh, there are six sides to every story. Yes. Uh, so. Some people will will swear up and down, you know, something that that they were there, and this is how it went down. And then you talk to somebody else, and they they have their version of how it went down. 
you know, of course, I wasn't born yet, so I, I, yeah. I can't say definitively. Yeah. Uh, however, from from the research I've done, the session notes that I've come across, Glenn was not on Valerie. Yeah, and uh, that's that's what uh, I always consult Andrew Sandoval in matters like this. And his yeah, it, it, yeah. the the list of session notes he has doesn't have uh, Glenn Campbell, but um, right, right, yeah, it's interesting. So. so so this guy named Louis Shelton, mm-hmm. guitar, uh, he was uh, on all the early stuff. Played last last train to Clarksville. Ah. That was his first his first big success as a session player. Was last train to Clarksville. Well, that's a good way to start. Yeah, we have one of his guitars at the museum, oh, and cool. he came and uh, we got to interview him. and And I was asking him about the monkey specifically, and and he did play that lead on Valerie, ah. and he had he had a great story about it. He uh, he talked about living in Arkansas in the early 50s when he was a teenager, and he would do that kind of flamenco-style riff uh-huh. to warm up. That was a kind of a warm-up exercise for him. Man. So he, he would talk about you know, playing guitar in his bedroom while his friends were out playing baseball, and he, he'd, be, he'd be practicing and, and working on and, – and so the idea of him sitting in his bedroom playing Valerie, essentially – in the early fifties before rock and roll even started wow. uh, blows my mind. And uh, the, the, the story he shared with me was that uh, he was just warming up for the session when they were getting ready to cut Valerie and Tommy Boyce said, Hey, you do that. Yeah, do that. And he, and he wasn't really necessarily <laughs> doing that lick to put in the song. He was just loosening up his fingers. Right. And uh, Tommy Boyce said, that's perfect. Do you know, put that solo in. And so he just, did that exercise he'd been doing all his life and he said it fit perfectly and now we all hear that on the radio and it jumps out at you and you, it's instantly recognizable yeah that is amazing well i'm never going to listen to that in quite the same way again so that's amazing yeah that's cool yeah yeah speaking of other kind of famous names who were involved in on the instrumental side of the monkeys neil young played on a few later songs such as as we go along and um, the first song that the monkeys did titled You and I, the one that was written by Davy Jones. Okay, here we go. You and I, take one.
pretty somewhat known at that time as a member of Buffalo Springfield. Was it common for musicians who were sort of starting to make a name in their own right to kind of keep doing session work to pay the bills? Right. I think that, yeah, that's a great example. Neil Young would have been looking for any work he could get. You know, I, I would say at that time he, he wasn't a household name, but but yeah, sure, he was visible and, and out there with Buffalo Springfield. As we go along, I, I think Ry Cooter plays guitar on that as well. And Yeah, uh, yeah. He, you know, he, he's a really well-respected session musician as well. But uh, yeah, Neil Young is a, a great example for that. Uh, now, I always kind of throw out there that it's usually up to the producers uh, to, to book the, the session players uh, mm-hmm. when they're putting together a, a, an album. Like as we go along, that's on head, and I'm yeah. thinking that's credited to the monkeys as producers. I don't have any inside track on on how Neil came to be on that session, but uh, my guess is he must have, you know, buddied up to to one of them and and got the gig. That's all I can imagine. Right, and that would make some sense. And then uh, you and I, uh, that was the version that was on instant replay. Uh, okay, that was right. Davey and uh, Bill Chadwick, because they covered yeah. that one. So. And I was looking, I was looking that up about about Neil Young because I'm fascinated by that stuff. And it appears that those were both done at the same studio, but on two different dates. Okay. It made it made me wonder if those were both cut in the same session, you know, on the same day. But right. according to the notes I had, they they were done at separate times. But that's that's another thing that's interesting about this is there's there's uh there's different records kept you know musician union records are kept and mm-hmm. studio logs and and the studios keep these records and there's a lot of fudging that went on in that in that world so well, yeah. it's hard it's hard to to take it as gospel I'm always fascinated by oh a, a song like Bridge Over Troubled Water is a great example where mm-hmm. Simon and Garfunkel recorded that in four or five different places they recorded it in New York with with New York guys they cut it in LA with LA guys they cut it in Muscle Shoals they cut it you know in, in Nashville they they made a version just trying to get it down to what they what they really wanted with different feels and different players so in as time goes by these Nashville guys would be like, yeah, I played on Bridge Over Troubled Water. And, and they're not lying. They did play on a recording of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Right. It just may not be the exact one that was released. Exactly. exactly. Or they, I, I can't speak to that particular song, but the, the case happens where they'll use the bass part from one guy and then, oh. they'll, then they'll lay down a different piano part in a different city even. So it's hard to know exactly you know what was recorded where so a lot of t- a lot of people turn to me because of the museum and say hey who's on this record and it's right. just it's impossible to you know absolutely know because these guys are are doing these recording sessions every day and it's you're talking 40 years and 50 years ago uh-huh. and, and it's just it's just too blurry but uh right but the uh you know, I, I still love going down that rabbit hole and, and, well, yeah. and digging and, and talking to these guys who were there and, and getting their stories. Even if the stories don't add up all the time, it's great <laughs> to hear them. Yeah. And I, I'm, I love when you start realizing that the same guy that played piano on a Simon and Garfunkel song played the same, played the piano on the association and played the organ yeah. part on the monkeys and played yeah. the, you know, you start thinking, oh gosh, it's, it's a small world. And, it's all and connected. It's so connected and, and, when you hear it on the radio, you certainly don't think of that or, you know. Right. 
but uh, it's, that's, that's kind of a tip of the hat to them for being so versatile and, and being able to fool us for all these years. Exactly, exactly. Who are some of the other interesting studio musicians in the Monkees catalog that maybe aren't as quite as well known as, say, you know, Neil Young or Glenn Campbell, but that right. we should probably know more about? Sure. Well, um, oh, one guy that's fascinating to me is a guy named Mike Deasy. Okay. And uh, he was a real versatile musician. Not He, he typically played guitar on monkey stuff. Um, and uh, he was he was on a lot of the same songs that uh, Glenn Campbell was on in those early first couple records. Uh, so he was kind of in that. He was in a lot of uh, Wrecking Crew stuff. But, but uh, as far as the monkeys go, he was Mary Mary and the kind of girl I could love and sweet young thing. Um, but... He would play, he started out playing a saxophone on the road with uh, Eddie Cochran. And um, then he kind of made the transition into the studio world. Um, and he played guitar on Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In by Kenny Rogers in the first edition. Oh, wow. He played sitar on Jackie Gleason's Music for Lovers. <laughs> uh, he played uh, guitar on Cherish and Windy by uh, the Association. Oh my goodness, uh, I didn't know that. And and Hal Blaine always spoke highly of him that he was really valuable on a session because if they needed a French horn, Mike could jump up and do it. And where that wins you points is okay if you're working on a song and the producer all of a sudden says, "Yeah, we need a French horn part in this." Okay, you got to call a French horn player, and he's right. got to get through traffic, and he's got to show up, and and you know it's it's like you got all these session guys who are getting paid, uh -huh. sitting around waiting, and if you can have one of these musicians jump up and grab a French horn, then it saves everybody money, and and uh, so he always talked really highly on on Mike DC for that. Yeah. Now the the fascinating thing about him was he through the um, Terry Melcher, who was a producer um, working with the Beach Boys, right? Brian Wilson, uh, he he got connected with this up and coming singer songwriter named Charlie Manson. And, oh, uh, that's why that name was ringing a bell with he, me. He he ended up uh, hanging out with the family and uh -huh. uh, you know got got into drugs and and uh, apparently at the time. Uh, Hal Blaine tried to book him for a session and he didn't answer his phone and Hal got somebody else and he called him a few days later and he didn't answer. He couldn't get a hold of him and nobody knew where he was and he had just disappeared and kind of dropped out and that blows my mind now. Yeah. Imagine trying to just disappear because of the internet. We, yeah. We couldn't, it's, you know, certainly wouldn't be as easy as it was back then. I guess you could just kind of pack up and move and, right. and drop out of society. But um, but I'm happy to report that Mike got his life back together and he's a preacher. Oh, wonderful. And, uh, he's, uh, uh he, he tells of the, the, the powers of, uh, you know, staying away from drugs. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he, he says rock and roll's okay though. He's, he's cool with that. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, it's funny cause I'm, I talk about him disappearing and kind of dropping out of society. He, uh, him and I are Facebook friends now, so oh, wow. I think it's a, a pretty full circle. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he's, but he's an amazing story, and, and uh, just a 
really versatile musician and, and you've heard his work and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we have an exhibit for him in the, in the museum as well. But, uh, but yeah, so, so Mike DC's one, um, well, Hal Blaine, I, I've kind of, of mentioned course, him in yeah. passing, but you know, he's a little more higher profile of some of these musicians, but I would say back in the sixties, people didn't know the name Hal Blaine. Um, okay. he, uh, but, but again, you, you, You've heard him on so many records, and he played on a lot of the Monkey stuff, and mm-hmm. played on uh, the Partridge Family, and uh, Mamas and the Papas, and the Beach Boys, and the Fifth Dimension, and all the Phil Spector stuff, and just shows up on a ton of records. Jan and Dean is him. Uh, the Carpenters is him, typically him, playing drums. Wow. Uh, and now I I touched earlier on the fact that the Wrecking Crew kind of got their name because the the jazz the jazz guys looked down on rock and roll, and and they felt it was beneath them. And, of course. And so they had those gigs that were like the Sinatra gigs and the mm-hmm. Dean Martin and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And, and those, you know, the little more highbrow gigs. Right. Now, the the funny story with Hal was Sinatra uh, was doing a session one day and his the drummer on the session, uh, the drums were squeaking and they obviously got it fixed. But at the end, Sinatra said, hey, let's get rid of that guy. And they fired the drummer. So they hired Hal to come <laughs> in. So Hal took over, and with his, the help of his assistant, Rick Falker, they they uh, put these little rubber grommets on his drum kit. And uh, the, his aim was to not have any metal touching metal. Right. He, he said, once I got the Sinatra gig, I wanted to keep the Sinatra gig. Yes. And, and he did, and Frank loved him. And... Uh, so this would have been in the, the later 60s, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and Sinatra had a bit of a resurgence, and as, as ha- he started having Hal on every session, and he started actually having Hal bring in some of the younger guys. So then Glenn Campbell would play on uh, Sinatra sessions, and, and Joe Osborne, and these guys would, would be brought in, and, uh, and Sinatra kind of had a resurgence. And, uh, yeah. Those, yeah. In, those, in those late 60s uh, again, and... and and uh, I, it, I, you know, it's maybe coincidence, but I, I have to think there's something to the fact that he got some younger musicians and, and it kind of made him a little more hip. But Well, you know, I'm just getting this hilarious thought of, you know, mom and dad in the, the late 60s trying to drown out the, you know, their kids' horrible, loud drum music with some Sinatra and they're still hearing Hal Blaine. And it's the same guys, uh-huh. right, right. Right. That's awesome. And so then Hal uh, said that, that Frank asked him to put together the group to back his daughter, and oh, that wow. was Nancy. So right, Nancy. right. And at the time, Hal said all she had was the name. You know, she wasn't Yeah. She wasn't famous yet. She didn't have any success. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, they, they, they certainly hit it out of the park with her. And, and, well, yeah. and Hal, Hal ended up on all of her records and then and traveled on the road with her and, and did really well with that. Oh, but, uh, but yeah, they, uh, it's, it's amazing. The crossover between these monkeys studio guys, not only on other rock and roll hits, but where they show up on movie soundtracks and commercials and, um, just all kinds of other, uh, other gigs. Um, well, absolutely. It's kind of like Voice and Heart writing the theme song to uh, Days of Our Lives. I mean, right, it's just right. all these interconnections going on behind the scenes. Yeah, and and I I guess in in a little way it it kind of 
rights some of the wrongs that the monkeys have endured all these years. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're, they, you know, they, they're, uh, sometimes looked at as a punchline. Oh, they don't play their own instruments. And, and, and you, when you kind of can share the story of these players and show people that, Oh, they were on other songs that I grew up loving and right. you realize it's not just the monkeys. So. Right. Wow. Well, speaking of the monkeys, I thought we'd maybe talk a bit about kind of two of the most monkeys and maybe we could call it monkeys adjacent recording sessions. Um, (laughs) Both of the ones I'm interested in talking about were led by Michael Nesmith. First was the infamous recording session for Wichita Train Whistle Sings. of the oddest things Nez ever recorded, and I think that's probably saying something. (laughs) (laughs) What was this album anyway? A lot of us have heard of it, but I bet not many of our listeners have actually listened to it. Right, right. I gotta say, I'm fascinated by this record. The Wichita Train Whistle Sings is... um, Maybe I can put it this way. As as kind of left field as head was to the everyday monkey fan uh, on a musical level, this album comes out and it's further left field. Uh, But I'm also amazed at they're not, there wasn't a clear like, Hey, we're putting the monkeys logo on the cover. Like they didn't try to sell it that way. I guess, Mm -hmm. It says Mike Nesmith, but I I, oh, I looked yeah. at it like, gosh, if they were looking at it to purely, uh, you know, make the quick buck, it, they went about it the wrong way. <laughs> but I love I love what they're doing. They're taking these uh-huh. arrangements of these mostly Nesmith songs and turning them on their head, right. turning them on their ear, and uh, stretching it out. And what happened was. Uh, Basically, Nesmith had to spend a big load of money by the end of the year for tax reasons. Mm-hmm. And so he, rather than pay taxes, he said, hey, if I spend this you know, X amount of dollars, I can write it off. And, and I think the, his accountants told him that you know, that you, you got two, two avenues to go. So he spent the money on hiring the, the best studio guys he could get. And over the top, a number of them, it wasn't, it wasn't a typical session uh, you yeah. know, he had like 40 guys. That's what and, I thought. It was something on that order. Yeah. And it was, it was over a weekend. It was a Saturday and Sunday, which meant he had to pay higher rate for the musicians. Uh-huh. It, and, and he had it, uh, had it catered. And, and so the, the stories I've heard from the different, uh, participants that I've talked to right. was that it was, it was a big party and it was kind of a blowout and, and, you know, they, they were living it up and, uh-huh. uh, 
Now I've read about the the people talking about the alcohol flowing heavily. I, the people, the individuals I've talked to myself downplay that. And they say, Oh, sure. There was, you know, I, Oh, I remember, I remember that happening, but you know, it, it, certainly didn't come off like a drunken brawl in their, <laughs> in their memories, or at least when they've recounted it to me. Uh-huh. And, and, the, and I'll say musically, when you listen to it, I mean, they're there, it's not just guys sitting around throwing out, you know, winging it. That's, it's, right. it's, it's really thought out. Rogers is, uh, mm-hmm. is the arranger, and he he has a rich pedigree. He yeah. he uh, he really you know was from Sinatra to uh, Woody Herman and Stan Kenton, and and uh, and so he's he's taken the reins, and he he also did like incidental music for Partridge Family and Starsky and Hutch and oh, that kind of stuff. So okay. so he uh, he's an interesting character in his on his own, and and so uh, the the arrangements are are really uh, intricate and. And uh, and great and I I've always kind of felt if I didn't know the melodies and know the monkey songs already I don't know if I would enjoy it as much as I do but uh-huh. being familiar with the monkeys versions and and hearing what they're doing on this record stretching it out and really genre bending it's yeah. it's jumping around it's not whereas the monkeys the monkeys themselves jump around with you know within an album oh, yeah. you've got some country you've got some pop you've got some uh, rock and roll you've got some psychedelic uh in this one it's it's like they're really pushing the boundaries and, and uh stretching them out and and within the same song they'll bounce around from it'll sound like a, a marching band and then a banjo will take over a section and then then it's a uh, chicken picking rock and roll and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just well, it's what, amazing what would you say is maybe your favorite song from that album wow well uh, it's almost like there are so many movements in each song mm, yeah. that it's hard to say because one song will kind of have four or five distinctly mm-hmm. different parts. 
but I am a sucker for the song Tapioca Tundra. Any oh, yeah. just just that song in general. So Amen. I I'll pick that one out. Just okay. if I had to pick, if I had to pick, I'll say Tapioca Tundra. That sounds good. And Ken, I believe that's your cue. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's hear a bit. Yes. <laughs> The second session I wanted to talk about was the famous Nashville sessions uh, in which Listen to the Band and Good Clean Fun were recorded as well as I think some early versions of some of the first songs that Nez released as a solo artist. Um, right, right. Who, who was involved in those sessions and why is it so important in the history of the Monkees and also possibly even the history of country rock? Yeah, well, just just the same uh, as far as pushing the genre uh, thing in the in the monkeys world. Uh, I'm a firm believer that I, I feel like to the outsiders, people looked at it like, oh, Nesmith went to Nashville and made these country songs. 
Now, these pickers that he used were country pickers, but they were really versatile as well. If he wanted, if he showed up and said, I want to do, you know, these psychedelic rock versions mm-hmm. of these songs, the guys on these sessions would have slid right into it and had no problem. These guys, you know, played on Dylan records and played on um, these, these soul recordings that were done here in Nashville. And, and I firmly believe that Nesmith came here with the idea that I want these to be country. I want, I want them to be this kind of hybrid of country rock. And, and so I'm a believer in that. So these guys that are on the sessions, um, the, the guitar that we have in the museum uh, belonged to Wayne Moss. And uh, he played guitar on all the Orbison, Roy Orbison hits. Oh, wow. Um, uh, played on the Dylan Nashville recordings, um, like Blonde on Blonde and, um, and that, that stuff. Lloyd Green, a great steel guitar player, uh, played on Listen to the Band. Um, he played on just tons of, of country hits. And, um, but also when Paul McCartney came to Nashville in 74, uh, Lloyd Green played with him and, and Paul really tried to get him to, to go on the road with him with wings. And, and Lloyd was too busy, you know, as a session guy. And, uh-huh. and, uh, and I love talking to him now about that. Cause he, he looks back on that. Like I could have been in wings. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> like, what was I thinking? But at the time he's like, no, I got a good gig. I'm not going to go out on the road. I'm, I'm making yeah. great money and I'm doing really well. And so, uh, you know, I could see that. Um, Tell me I can live without her If I only listen to the band Listen to the band Jerry Kerrigan played drums. Uh, he was uh, played on Kenny Rogers stuff and, and again, a lot of established Nashville stuff in the, in the 70s and uh, late 60s. David Briggs on piano, uh, He's he's got he's a great studio guy. Uh, he has a, a House of David, a, a famous studio here in Nashville. Um, Charlie McCoy, another really versatile musician, can play anything. Yeah. Uh, he played harmonica on Listen to the Band. Oh, okay. But uh, he played guitar on Dylan Records. He played vibraphone. He played uh, wow. You name it. He played bass on on different albums. Yeah, he's just a, an all around guy. He's still still in, in here in busy uh, session musician still still doing sessions he probably played on a couple sessions today i bet but uh that's awesome and norbert putnam uh-huh. uh, played bass and uh just uh he played with elvis and um just really versatile musicians right. these, these nashville sessions are, are strong and uh did it at rca studio a. i was about to ask and that is the uh studio that uh was just very recently saved from uh uh, the wrecking ball by um, exactly. by exactly. it was Ben Folds, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. There's a there's a uh, uh, kind of a uh, a panel <laughs> that was put in, in charge of saving saving Nashville, mm-hmm. really, and, and more so than just that one particular right. studio. But, but that's been you know that's that's part of the growth of Nashville as things are getting demolished. But but uh, Studio A uh, was saved and they they saved it from a, a developer wanted to 
to, you know, take it down and, and put in condos. And, mm-hmm. and so the, it, it was great because it kind of got the city to, to rise up and say, hey, this is what Nashville is about. And all this history happened here. And, and yeah, I mean, and Mike Nesmith's name came up. And, yeah, you know, I remember. When, when we tried to uh, represent that, hey, Nashville's not just country music. And, and you know, they, they talk about, uh, you know, stuff that's come out of Nashville that you wouldn't associate with, you know, like mm-hmm. Dust in the Wind by Kansas was recorded yeah. here. and. Uh, and the Roy Orbison stuff, and Brenda Lee, and the Everly Brothers, and mm-hmm. and uh, and all this this rich history, and and uh, so so Studio A was it was it was great that it was able to be saved and, and not torn down. So yeah, yeah, still going strong. Yay, wonderful! Yeah, and I'm yeah. definitely gonna have to check that out next time I'm in Nashville. Yeah, I'll take you there. Oh, cool. Well, um, as we've t- been talking for the last half hour or so, lots of musicians' careers intersected with the monkeys and i understand that yours did too in a very small way um <laughs> you mentioned in a facebook post a while back that you had a very memorable encounter with davy jones would you like to share it oh yeah it was so great it was a uh, uh fox fox news channel we were uh-huh. on fox and friends and uh it was their morning show and so we we had to show up at like i don't know some ungodly hour yeah like, 3:45 a.m. or something Ugh. crazy, load in and, and get everything set up to play. And right. now Davy Jones was a guest that same day, so we get there super early, and we're, uh, you know, our crew is setting up the the the, the instruments and everything, and, and we're just hanging out in the green room. And sure enough, Davy Jones is there, and uh, so it was it was just a, a fascinating situation to to be. I, I couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't go anywhere. We <laughs> we had to sit and make small talk. But he was so gracious and cool and just so nice. And so, yeah, it was one of those things that, you know, for the first half hour, it's it was like I just didn't want to bug him. And, I you know, I kept to myself and, and everything. And, and like I said, we started making small talk. And then he wanted to talk about music and he wanted to talk about Nashville and he wanted to talk about. And, of course, then he kind of opened the door. So then I was able to ask him about the monkeys and ask him about his, his, uh, past. And, and, and so he shared all kinds of stories about records he had as a kid that his parents had, that he grew mm-hmm. up in, and so, where some of the things intersected with the, the music that we were playing. And, oh, wow. and, uh, so that was really fascinating. And mm-hmm. he was promoting a book, um, uh, it was called daydream believing. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, uh, he said, Oh, he said, I'll get you a copy of my book. And, and again, I didn't, didn't, uh, didn't press him for it, but, right. uh, about a week later, um, I got a call and that his publisher had, had, uh, set aside some copies for us and they showed Aww. up and sure enough, he was a man of his word. And, uh, just the other day, uh, I came across, uh, an autograph I got that day that he, he signed for me and, mm-hmm. uh, that was a, a, a really good memory. So the thing I loved about it was he was walking out to sing daydream believer. Mm-hmm. And as he was about to leave, like he was, you know, standing in the wings, basically ready to be introduced and walk out and sing. And he turned to me and he said, you sure you want to hit kid? You'll be singing it when you're 55. And, uh, and walked off. It was, it was like a Sinatra kind of moment. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, sure enough, he went out and everybody loved it. But, uh-huh. you know, that, that really did ring true with me. Like, you know, careful what you wish for, he was kind of saying to me. Yep. <laughs> but that was, it can... was a great, 
it was as I tell people all the time that was when you know when you meet people that you put on a pedestal mm-hmm. it's easy to be disappointed and yeah. my Davy Jones experience was top notch that's wonderful yeah oh I, I know a lot of your listeners have had the same experience you know mm-hmm. that you, you hear all the great stories and, and everything and, and uh, yeah. they you know that that one that one went right along with it and uh, I did come in across uh, Mickey one time but it was <laughs> it was so brief it, it was it was uh it was in Washington D.C. and oh, wow. okay. and it was it was just like oh it's Mickey Dolenz wow and we shook hands and mm-hmm. it, there was there was no memorable story right <laughs> <laughs> that's how most of my meet and greets have gone <laughs> right right yeah, yeah. Right. well that's amazing and I know you've sort of you've sort of changed careers but not exactly you're now a curator at the musicians hall of fame and museum in nashville uh it was really interesting kind of reading up on it because your museum's kind of dedicated to raising the profiles of these studio musicians and their role in music history what do you hope that people take away from our conversation today about all of the musicians who played on the monkeys uh recordings many of whom didn't really get credit until years or decades later Sure. So what I share with people that come through the museum, if you buy an album or download a record, typically it's got one name on it. It might be it might be a group. It might say the monkeys. Mm-hmm. But if you buy you know a Beyonce record or a Jay-Z record, right. especially the kids, they look at that and think, oh, this guy made this record. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did when group, I was a kid. Yeah. This group made this record. Now, the truth is there might be 150 people involved with that record. Right. Uh, it, it, typically, there is. There's there's a large amount of people. The the musicians. Uh, then you can really get on the in that thinking of the art department and the promotion team and the the people working behind the scenes to get it played and all that. But even just just the musicians, there's a whole group of people that that work on it. It's too easy for people to gloss over that and think, oh, it's just this person made this album. That's why we exist is to bring attention to all these people that play, and we are not. Uh, a certain genre we we cover all genres of music and the displays that we have and the the instruments we have on display our criteria for them is they were used on hit records so when you come to nashville and you see our museum you get to uh, experience these stories of all these these musicians that are on these records you've heard so our slogan is come see what you've heard because as you go from exhibit to exhibit you you come across these names that you don't necessarily recognize but when you read about what they played on and find discover what they were playing on and what these instruments were on you've certainly heard them and mm-hmm. so you know we have the drum set that was on all the Otis Redding's sessions and we wow. have the the guitars that were used on Elvis records and Neil Diamond records and mm-hmm. and you know these these people who backed up these iconic artists and and did these iconic songs uh you know a whole section of motown a whole section of stacks uh, a whole section of philly so it's uh it's it's really eye-opening for these people to to uh to come experience it well that is amazing i i hope to get a chance to come to nashville at some point in 2016 and i definitely if i get to come out to nashville again the musicians hall of fame will be on my to-do list if people want to learn more about the musicians hall of fame where should they go to check you out yeah musicianshalloffame.com and we will be happy to uh to 
help you with any questions you have and come see us actually in person come to nashville absolutely well thank you jay for all of your uh for your time and your wonderful insights today this was just a totally fascinating conversation uh learning about a lot of the people behind the scenes who made uh, some of the monkeys music as wonderful as it is so thank you for coming sure. out Sure. Well, thank you. And, and thanks for all the hard work you all do with Zilch. Uh, I love the podcast and you, you guys are, uh, you can tell it's a labor of love and we all appreciate it. It is. And, and we have a great time to giving it to all of you. So thank you much, Jay. Sure. Okay. This is 10. No, slow it down just a little bit. Hannah. Thank you, Sarah. That was a very cool interview with Jay McDowell. I recently spoke to Jay as well, and he will be on an upcoming episode of Zilch. He will be involved when we discuss the Nez solo album. So let's be looking forward to that in the future. Wonderful. That's going to be great. But before we get to that, this is the month. This is it. The Blu-ray is going to drop before we know it. And I can't wait. We're also going to be doing an episode where we concentrate on a Blu-ray review. And uh, we're going to get pretty in-depth with that. So that's going to be fun. And the shows have started. The Monkees have performed their first concert to kick off this tour. And soon, I mean, it's just going to be the summer of the Monkees, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'm going to be going to two concerts, the one in Tulsa I mentioned earlier, and then another one with my uh, good friends uh, up in Cleveland. It's just going to be thrilling to watch all this play out. We're going to have a lot of great content uh, about it. Uh, I happen to know that it is actually going to be uh, Zach Mortensen, our uh, monkey man, his first Monkees concert ever, and I have actually already asked him to come on the show to provide his own review of the Monkees when they when they play in Dallas. So uh, be looking forward to that one. It's going to be a fun segment when it happens. The Year of the Monkeys. The Monkeys are coming to your town, your Blu-ray player, your CD player, and your computer. And you need to be prepared. So good times are coming as well. We look forward to the Monkey CD. This is this is just going to be great. Let us know what you're looking forward to on our Facebook page or email us at zilchmonkeys at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at zilchcast. Ah, there you go. Very good. So we will see you on the next episode of Zilch. And always take some time to monkey around and put a smile on your face and someone else's. We'll see you. Bye. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members, past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burke. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. <laughs> Don't now. Now, really, everybody cool it because I'm going to be able to get through this. Action.
Hey, wow. It's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, gee, that's a nice thought. Gee, that's a neat button. What does it say? Let's go again. Sure, we're both on. Would you say something? Something. In the way she moves. Huh? Tracks me like no other lever. <laughs> lover. Lover, mm -hmm. I mean, sorry. Lever, lover. <laughs> 50 ways to love your lever. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and the bloopers are underway. All right. Yep. On an edition of Good Times, Finger Cross. And uh, fingers, fingers cr on it, and a bit. Now I've got to get over to the Zilch page. Le Zilch page. Le page de Zilch. This would be le page de Zilch. <laughs> That's hilarious. And over yeah. on the other side of the world. Well, I don't want to say on the other side of the world, because it's... On the other side of the Atlantic. Yes. Okay. About a fourth of the way around the world. All right. Yes, Check. you need to... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go, go No, go ahead. Okay. That work? Okay. So... Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that out. You can also listen to this show online, and they also... Do... No, I don't want to do that right now. No, because it's... Just, yeah, and it's not the... Okay. So... Oh, we are not prepared today. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm not sure we're ever prepared, but... You're right. Or on net. No. We... We... Peter... Um, let's see. I want to throw to the commercial. Blu-ray box set? Here's how you can do it. Do that again. There was a weird beep. Oh, I think that's my Facebook. It probably picked it up. Okay, oh, okay. sorry. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I got love in my tummy and it feels like I'm loving you. La, 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 la. Let me, let me get my thoughts. I had some once. Okay, cool. I'll, uh... You know, I'll go start making lunch, and you let me know when you have some thoughts. Thank you. Um, <laughs> book page or email us at. Damn it! No, I have to go. Zilch monkeys. Desperate. Hornswoggling. <laughs> Capistrano. <laughs> 